And welcome back, pool fans from across the country and around the world. This is American Billiard Radio, and today is April 17th, 2014. Welcome to another fun-filled edition. Before we get started, I'll let you know that it has been declared on American Billiard Radio that April is Alfredo D'Oro Awareness Month. And if you didn't know already, Alfredo de Oro was a Cuban player who came to America and did quite well for himself. He, in the course of his career, captured uh, something along the lines of 30, 32 world pocket billiard titles. Um, He also, during that same span, uh, held three cushion titles for about a decade. So um, he's really the only one in billiard history to have held so many titles in more than one discipline at the same time. Uh, He was so revered in his country that his government offered him a lifetime pension. So our hats off to Alfredo de Oro, who was born and died in April. So April is his month. And now, moving right along... Um, we are going to, uh, if you didn't catch the show this past week, what we're doing is uh, launching a series of interviews with the eight candidates for the Moscone Cup team. We're going to be speaking with uh, each one of them, and we're going to talk about um, what it takes to be a a team member, Um, what it is that they perhaps have to offer to the team. Um, We're going to give you a chance to get to know these guys a little bit better. Um, You know, there's a lot of stuff out there that we get to see. We get to watch them play this video, that video. We get to watch them compete in uh, all these various events. But it's a little more rare to be able to uh, sit down and talk with them and learn a little bit more about who they are and their life. So... That's what we hope to do uh, is uh, share with you uh, the members of the team and uh, hopefully give you guys a little more insight to uh, what kind of people they are and why we might want them to represent us. So stick around. Today we're going to be talking to uh, Oscar Dominguez. And uh, then, of course, in subsequent weeks, we will uh, be getting on to the rest of the team. So... Like I said, stick around and um, support your team. We appreciate it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to AZ Billiards on American Billiard Radio. You know, I talk to a lot of people. I I, I talk to a lot of uh, uh, visitors, and I refer to them as the hardest working man in the billiards industry. I think my guest this week easily qualifies as the hardest working woman in the billiards industry. Sam Vidal, how you doing, Sam? Oh, thanks. I'm great, Mike. Sam, you got a lot of stuff going on. You always have a lot of stuff going on. I like to stay busy. For sure. <laughs> you succeeded that pretty well. Let's see. You've got 
the Billiards Education Foundation. Uh, what exactly is your role with Felt Billiards out there in Denver? Um, I'm one of the managers there. I handle everything pool-related, so I organize all the leagues and the tournaments and um, events and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, do payroll. So Certainly not a small part of your life might be the two children that your mother too. <laughs> yes, recently two was one, but um, that's, that's a, a full, double full-time job all in itself. Absolutely. Uh, how are the kids? They're fun. Two is a fun age. So the oldest one is almost two, and then I've got a, an almost two-month-old. So it's been um, a life-changing experience, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be a good explanation for it. Um, how's married life treating you? Oh, it's the best. Are you actually getting any chances to get out and hit balls at all? No, but uh, we are planning to have a table in our new house, so we are moving this week as if I wasn't. Um, I just felt like I didn't have enough um, activity in my life, so we're moving <laughs> into our new house, so I'll have a table there. But um, I don't know. We've been, um, um, There's a, a company in town, Straight Shots, that's been doing a lot of um, great things for pool, and they've got a ladies' event coming up next month that might have to consider coming out of retirement for a bit. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> well, I know all the players here in Arizona miss having you at our tour stops. Oh. Um, so I understand you've got a, a small teaching gig coming up, as if you weren't busy enough. I do, and I miss teaching, so I'm really looking forward to this. Um, it's a boot camp um, with Dr. Dave. He's organized um, an annual boot camp, and um, this year's camp is uh, an instructor from Canada. His name is Randy Russell, uh, co-founder of um, the Billiards University with Dr. Dave, and he's also co-author of Billiard University Instructional Video Series. And um, so Dr. Dave, Randy, and myself, um, over Fourth of July weekend, we're going to be doing a uh, three-day boot camp um, at Felt Billiards. So I'm really looking forward to that. What level of player is your target audience for this? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, I, This is my first year being involved, and from my understanding from um, his event last year, or the, the camp last year, it was really more sort of intermediate um, to uh, higher level players, but um, don't quote me on that. You might have to um, just check out the website for yourself, and um, you know I'm sure there's something to offer for players of all levels. But um, but I think it is kind of geared more towards the intermediate to higher level players because he's got um, a great thing that he's doing with his billiard university where he's offering diplomas um, at different levels, and there's um, a measurable, tangible way to, um, or tangible way to measure your level, your skill level. So that's pretty cool. And the website for that is? Uh, it's billiarduniversity.org, and there's a link there on his webpage for the, the, the boot camp. Okay, and that's July 4th through 6th. Um, looking at the page now, it's $850 per person, and I can they sign up right there on the website? I believe so. It's um, a good question. 
Yeah. Um, I believe so. Okay, billiaruniversity.org. So tell me about the Billiards Education Foundation. So the Billiard Education Foundation, also known as the BEF, um, is uh, it, it's a nonprofit organization that raises money for junior billiard programs and academic scholarships for, for kids um, using billiards and pool as a, a vehicle. So um, since I've been involved um, in 2012, we've been really just trying to give the organization a lot more exposure. Um, one of my big goals has always been to just overall create a better image and um, a positive image for our sport, as well as getting more businesses outside of the billiard world involved in pool and get it recognized outside of, outside of the industry. So I'm really excited this year we are hosting our 26th annual Junior National Nine Ball Championships during the Billiard Congress of America trade show, which is going to take place in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, so our event is going to be June 24th through the 27th. And um, I'm, I'm, it's going to be, you know, that's kind of where um, I wasn't involved then, but in the um, beginning of, of the um, the junior nationals and the BEF in the early days, um, that's kind of where it started with the trade show. So it's nice to kind of bring it back to its roots and um, be kind of a neutral um, ground for, for a lot of um, vendors and sponsors and stuff like that. Now, the Junior Nationals has been the start of a handful of top players' careers, isn't it? Mm-hmm, absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, Jesse Engel, who uh, just with his team won the, the bonus ball season, um, he he was a former Junior Nationals champion and also um, a, I believe, silver medalist in Nicaragua during the Junior World Championships. And, um, you know, there are a lot of other junior events um, that take place annually through the various leagues, and we try to work with them as well. But we are the only um, junior event that affords kids the opportunity to qualify for the World Junior Championships, which is a, a sanctioned, a WPA-sanctioned event. So, um, you know, the if if they want to try to qualify to participate in the WPA World Junior Championships. The only way they can do it is by um, finish, having a top finishing um, place in the Junior Nationals, the BEF Junior Nationals. And the players who compete in the Junior Nationals, are they competing for prize money or prizes or, or what is it? Um, so we award the top finishers with scholarship dollars, um, academic scholarships, and um, they also receive prizes, trophies, um, all kind of um, uh, recognition. It's one of the, it's the most prestigious um, junior title. Um, you know, Mary Raken has is a multi-time um, junior nationals and, you know, and then on to collegiate champion. She's also um, a gold medalist at one of the world events. And, um, you know, Brianna Miller, she was our most winningest player. I think she won seven consecutive years in a row. And, um, and we're going to miss her this year because she's, she's in college now at Lindenwood University. But um, April Larson, I think, is kind of following in her footsteps. She's won the last three years in a row, um, the 12 and, 12 and under, I'm sorry, 14 and under girls division. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of 
uh, up-and-coming players, and um, I think, yeah, I think you're going to see a lot of them, too, um, in a lot of our pro events coming up here. Now, you mentioned the 14 and under girls division. How many divisions are there? We have four divisions, um, 18 and under boys and girls, 14 and under boys and girls. So that allows the the younger you know, 14 and under players to not have to compete against, you know, the players who are out there playing, you know, pro skill level, right? It does. It does. But, like, you know, in April Larson's um, case, she's, you know, and same thing with Brianna. They were both winning the 12, 14 and under divisions when they were 11 and 12 years old, you know, and um, and then winning, in Brianna's case, winning the 18 and under division when she was 15, 15 through 18. So, um, but the, uh, um, the, when we go to the qualifiers for junior world championships, um, we usually take the, the winners from the two 14 and under divisions and then the top, um, I believe top three finishers from the 18 under boys division and then the one top, the, the winner of the 18 under girls division. So Now talking about the world's is that separate divisions, or is that just male and female, or or how does that work? It's just male and female, and that's kind of why we why we do it the way that we do it. Um, you know, a lot of these sort of policies have been grandfathered in, um, and just kind of you know with with logic the way that they're they're done. So um, so yeah, I um, I think it makes sense. And the Billiards, Billiards Education Foundation as a whole, does your money come from, now you mentioned bringing in sponsors from outside the industry, does the money for the foundation itself come from just uh, corporate sponsors or can people get involved at a grassroots level? That's a wonderful question and I'm, thank you for asking that question. Um, the funds Funding for the scholarships and the the junior programs come from everywhere, and, and you know the um, there is a lot of funding for our actual junior um, nationals event that comes from corporate sponsors um, in and outside of the industry, and then um, you know year-round donations from our supporters, and um, which we're very very grateful for, and um, you know we wouldn't be able to do the things that we do and make the impacts that we do without that support. So we're definitely very grateful for that. And um, we uh, we do have fundraising events as well throughout the year. Um, you know, I, and I definitely um, contribute to hosting more of those events uh, last year <laughs> than, um, than currently um, with my hands a little bit full at the moment. But, um, but no, it's you know, we encourage um, a lot of the rooms and stuff um, and our supporters across the country to um, host fundraisers and, you know, we get questions all the time. How can we help you guys? How can we support you guys? And, um, you know, we have also have volunteers and stuff. But um, a program that I'm, I've been working on for some time now um, that will lead to being a, uh, hopefully a, a fundraising program for the BEF is the Junior State Championship Program um, where we can um, get some big sponsors on board and um, a lot of them we've been in negotiation with for some time now but um, 
to uh, to be able to offer more to room owners who want to host a junior state championship program. So the um, you know ideally we'd love to see at least one junior state championship in each state, um, but you know. Obviously, there's some areas of the country, as you know, Mike, that are um, much more uh, where the billiard scene is much more thriving than than others. Um, and there's others that might host a junior event and just get you know two or three kids show up, um, if any at all. So, so, um, so you know, we can definitely break it up into divisions. If one room wants to host a junior state championship. Um, for the 14 under, and then another one room wants to do 18 under, or something like that. You know, um, we can definitely work with them. But, but um, so look, look for that to come in the near future. And um, and yeah, anyone interested in getting involved, either on a corporate level or on an individual level, please um, feel free to visit our website. It's billiardeducation.org, or contact us directly. And for more information. Okay, so. Sponsors can get their information at Billiard Education, not Billiards, BilliardEducation.org. Um, room owners can do the same thing. They can contact you there on the website. Mm-hmm. And if I were a junior player, where would I get information? So everyone can go to the website. It is BilliardEducation.org. And um, if if any juniors are uh, looking to get more information in regards to Junior National specifically, there is an events tab at the top. Um, if you click on events and then go to um, Junior Nationals um, and then 2014, that'll give you all the information on this year's event, um, how to um, how to qualify, and if room owners want to host a qualifier, and if um, if you'd like to find out, uh, if, if you're already qualified and you want lodging information, all of that is posted up on the website. So. And for friends who want information on helping you guys move this weekend? Call me. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> or just show up. <laughs> all right, yeah. Sam, I will not keep you any longer because it sounds like you've got more than enough stuff on your agenda for the rest of the day, week, month, year. Thank you for for the opportunity. Um, yeah, and and um, thanks everyone who has supported me or um, the BEF or any of my endeavors along the way. So I appreciate everyone out there. All right, and we hope to see you at the trade show, and we hope to see some great pool. That's right. All right, okay, thanks, Sam. Care. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye bye. This is Scott Lee, PBIA Master Instructor from Largo, Florida. And Randy Gallagher, PBIA Master Instructor from Dallas, Texas. And welcome to the One Minute Pool Instructor. Today's topic, how to use a mechanical bridge. What the heck is that? Don't you just crawl up on the table? Well, you know, you used to be able yeah. to do that, Randy. Yeah. Years ago, uh, yeah. back when I started playing, that was a perfectly acceptable thing, was to actually climb up on the table. And in fact, uh, some players uh, who were very short stature demanded that as a uh, part of uh, how they were going to play if you were gambling. Of course, nowadays, 
Got to keep one foot on the floor. Yeah, that rule came in in 1978, and, and I was one who crawled on the table. <laughs> it also had to do with my, making the rule. So, uh, so how do we use a mechanical bridge, and when should we use it? And that's a question I get asked a lot. Uh, when should I use a mechanical bridge? If you are stretched out on the table, uh, as far as you can comfortably reach, in other words, you've got your bridge hand out as far as you can comfortably reach, you're holding your cue as far back on the end. You might only have your thumb and forefinger around the very end of the butt cap, but if uh, you're stretched out as far as you can and you come to your natural finish position and your tip touches the cue ball, you're okay. But the minute that you have to uh, involve a push forward because your tip doesn't reach the cue ball with your natural finish when you're stretched out, that's the time to use a mechanical bridge. Because otherwise you're going to start uh, pushing the stick through the ball and you're going to have all kinds of inaccuracy. So how do you use one? You set it out on the table. The bridge head is your bridge hand. You want your bridge hand somewhat close. So you put your bridge head out there like it was your bridge hand. You, there are several slots on the bridge head that allow you to either shoot over a ball, uh, hit top, hit middle, hit bottom. Then you align yourself behind the mechanical bridge. You hold the cue as if you were going to throw a dart. So that's a different kind of a, gr a grip uh, than you would use for playing pool, which is an underhand type of grip. Then you put your elbow out to the side because if you have your elbow underneath you, it's going to get in the way. Uh, not um, not uh, like a dart player. A dart player wouldn't put their arm out on the side. And then you use a uh, wrist motion to move the stick through the ball. So the, the mechanical bridge is not designed to do table length draws and, and power strokes and things like that. You, you keep it in line with making the ball in the pocket and keeping your, your position uh, as natural as possible. And so the mechanical bridge can be your best friend. I learned to use it as a, as a beginning player and I'm very comfortable with playing with it today. One of the key ingredients of using the mechanical bridge for me was to anchor the butt end of the mechanical bridge down on the table with, I'm, I'm a right-handed player, so my left hand would actually pin the butt of the uh, um, rake down on the table so there was no giving or taking. Um, a lot of times I see beginners holding one in each hand and they look like a seesaw going back and forth. They sure do. Or they just lay the bridge down and they don't anchor it. Yeah, like I think saying. it has to be anchored. And then the bridge head's going to move and then you're going to miss where you're, where you're aiming at the ball. So uh, um, this is pretty apparent in snooker, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, they use a bridge. They're very good at it. And they have to. That big table. Yeah, that's a lot. Six by yeah. twelve. Anything else on, on a mechanical bridge? No, just uh, the, the only way to get good with it is get out there and play with it. When I was learning how to play, my teacher would tell me, okay, if you're going to practice uh, for an hour, I want you to practice another 15 minutes and use the bridge on every shot. Yeah, and, uh, we used to play a game. And we had a, a, a cutoff bridge, a short uh, uh, handle bridge, mm -hmm. where we could go out, we had to play maybe 10 shots with the bridge, no matter where the cue ball was. And, and after a while, it got real interesting. Absolutely, and there there have been some uh, uh, hustlers out there who have uh, uh, gained an advantage or gotten a bet down because they said they'd use the bridge on every shot, and so most people are thinking they're going to have that bridge head a long ways away, but they figured out a way to get that bridge hand very close oh, to their I've seen it. normal I've hand. Seen I've it. seen it too. 
It'll only work once Yeah, well, <laughs> with every player. That's why it's called a hustle. There you go, exactly. So the mechanical bridge can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Get out there and practice with it. I'm Scott Lee. I'm Randy G. And this has been the One Minute Pool Instructor. Join us next week when we're going to be talking about the break. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of Pool on the Grind here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com. I'm your host Allison Fisher of NYCGrind.com and joining me this week is Kat Adamy, author and daughter of Freddie the Beard, Pennsylvania. How are you doing today, Kat? Wonderful. Happy to be here. Awesome. Thanks a lot for joining me. So the topic that's sort of on the one of the top priorities for you, I know, is Freddie's recent book, Pool Hustler, the Encyclopedia of Pool Hustlers. Yeah. And I know he's been doing some promotional stuff to help get the word out about the book, and you've also been uh, assisting him in that process. What has that been like? Wow. Well, um, I couldn't be happier... Um, teaching the world about uh, my dad's rich life as a pool hustler and a professional pool player um, and his great storytelling skills. Um, but again, he is my dad, so and I'm kind of a you know um, matter-of-fact businesswoman at heart, and so it's kind of funny managing a pool hustler who does not work nine to five. Um, to kind of um, work with me so that I can present him to the world um, as a mainstream sports personality, and um, so it, it's been it's been fun. You know, my dad still has the pool hustler Thomas Thomas Edison type of sleep schedule, where he basically takes about four naps a day. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to, um, I, you know, because he was so used to staying up late at night. Uh, to play pool, as you know, sometimes pool matches go all night long, and so I have to work around his nap schedule, <laughs> which is kind of uh, funny. <laughs> so, and something really exciting that I know we recently spoke about is that he is about to be featured in the Chicago Reader. Yes, um, so my dad is born and bred in Chicago, on the south side of Chicago, in a um, a neighborhood called Bridgeport, which is predominantly um, Italian-American and Irish-American. It's right by um, White Sox Park. Um, it's where our mayor, Dailies, both Dailies hail from. Um, and um, the Chicago Reader is kind of our version of the Village Voice, and uh, which means that they get to do some really exciting um, character studies and exposés. And we've made a wonderful connection with one of the writers there who actually went to Columbia has her master's from Columbia School of Journalism in New York, and um, her and her editors just, they're so happy and excited about this piece. They said that he's going to be on the cover, and on Friday, we're going to do a photo shoot at Chris's Billiards, and those of you who are familiar with The Color of Money, the Martin Scorsese film, um, that is where um, the opening begins at um, Chris's Billiards, and so it's a very iconic 
uh, Chicago pool room that's still around and the perfect place to do this photo shoot for the article, which they said is at least 3,000 words, which is fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, Chris, Chris's is definitely one of the most iconic pool rooms still around in the U.S. today. So how would you say the reception has been from some of the out, you know, outside outsiders to pool from Freddie's well, Freddie's book? Um, I would say that the reception has gone over like gangbusters. I always think that I am, you know, I'm in the pool world, but I'm not in the pool world. Like I'm a kind of, I'm like the geeky daughter of the pool hustler, okay, who was blessed with a phenomenal education. So I'm someone who's in the, what I like to call the outside world. <laughs> and so hopefully I'm bridging the difference between the pool world and then, you know, the, um, you know, intellectual world. So I'm a writer and um, I, um, you know, I, I read your mainstream newspapers, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker is my favorite magazine. Um, and I know that um, that getting the um, exposure in those magazines and newspapers, periodicals, um, you know, like Charlie Rose is someone I would just do anything for my dad to be on Charlie Rose that by introducing this world um, through this book, which is open for the mainstream, that's the beauty of it. It's not a technical pool book. It's stories about America from the past 50 years. Of, it kind of reads like a Coen Brothers movie, right, like Inside Lewin Davis or um, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, where, like, the, this American, you know, this average guy comes across, like, these fantastical situations and celebrities and American, real American heroes and is in these, like, stranger than fiction um, experiences. And also, it's a kind of like a love letter to a lost America, right, when you could hitchhike, when you could share a car with a few guys of different ages and totally different backgrounds to go right. and fly your trade, which was to play pool and to make money playing pool. Yeah, um, absolutely, mid Mid-century, it was that was the thing. You know, you talk about Jack Kerouac and all of the the writers and the thinkers from that era. It was really a lot of unique American experiences that were being recorded. And the pool hustler, the road player, is such a a storied, fabled. Uh, character, and I think that it's fantastic that your dad has put together this book that sort of is a kaleidoscope of all of these different uh, voices and experiences. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the few people around who had such a breadth of experience and who also happens to be you know, an intellectual himself. My dad graduated high school a year and a half early at a college scholarship. He reads the book like every day. Uh, I mean, he just, he has like, he has a match of history, brain power, and storytelling abilities. Personality can make you laugh. That's a fantastic combination that hopefully, if he's put in front of the right people, like let's say, Charlie Rose, let's say he's, ne- he's on the sofa next to Jimmy Fallon, who I love. Um, 
he can help increase exposure to pool and give it this reverence that it really deserves and that it's kind of been, you know, lacking. No one's really taken the reins of it for a while or, you know, they ha- there hasn't been a winning combination. So I'm mm-hmm. a business person, right? I'm a marketing person and I'm trying to use a structure of marketing that works in business and put it toward pool. And that means that you need these people to be educated on the value of pool, of pool lore, of the story and its potential for the future. And so that's why I've been reaching out to these um, top-tier news um, news centers and, and celebrities and people of that um, of that note to help raise exposure of pool. And um, and it's fun for my dad. It's fun for them. We just recently had an interview at. The, called The Interview Show here in Chicago. It should be on Huffington Post soon that this wonderful man, Mark Bazer, hosts. Um, and there were four guests, one of which was Peter Sagal from National Public Radio, who's fantastic on air, right? And, mm-hmm. um, and we love him. But honestly, the room kind of all shifted when my dad got on stage and had his interview. And more than a few people came up to us and said, your dad should have been the whole hour. Like people, wow. and this was a group of hip, this was a group of hipsters. I mean, all they know is Minnesota Fast. Maybe they were like ten years old when The Color of Money came out. Right. You know, but they were fascinated by him. And all my dad ever told me about Minnesota Fast, which he believe me, he talked about him so much to me as a child. Um, and I had the pleasure of meeting him. Was that Fast was one of the most fascinating characters of the 20th century? That he just drew people to him. Then it's ironic. It's funny that he's telling me this when, when he is being interviewed, the same thing happens that he claims was was fast as like you know what made him so popular. My dad's got that same magnetism, and so I can't wait to see him in more interviews and to travel to a few more cities promoting this book, um, and to see that there. I mean, there's some real magic going on here. I mean, this is like there's some momentum. Well, that's fantastic. I really have to commend you and your dad for the work that you're doing because I think you really nailed it because uh, getting pool and getting the pool personalities into the mainstream sphere is really the only way that uh, there can be progress for the players and for the industry. So I think that what you're doing is definitely on the right track. And I think that our generation, the younger generation, almost has sort of this uh, responsibility to go the extra mile. And and it's not even really that difficult because, like you said, people just eat it up. I've I've spoken to people that I run into on the street who see me carrying my pool cue end up talking my ear off with questions when they hear that I'm a pool player. They want to, they want to know all about it. So I feel well, like Allison, first uh, of all, there, there's nothing more attractive than a woman who knows how to play pool. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's certainly being in a, a major metropolitan area like New York or Chicago. We're in a ideal position with major media outlets to bring more exposure to uh the great the great characters and the great um world of 
world of pool as we know it. Absolutely, but I'm also business-minded, right? So I have my history is 15 years in business. Right. And I want to I, I want to market this, market my father as the successor to Minnesota Fast, a great personality, um, a great writer, great storyteller, but I want him to also be the impetus to getting Wall Street and, and, and investors to invest in pool. I want to make people some money because nothing, you know, that's a, there's no greater motivator, right, than making people some money. And I am absolutely convinced that there are numerous, numerous, um, you know, um, monetary um, endeavors that are possible with this new, resur- as I like to call it, the resurrection of pool with my dad as, you know, leading the charge, you know, as a legend of pool, as a personality, someone who can make a great interview, be on television. Um, and I, I truly believe that, that if, we inst- if we instituted, um, you know, that 12-point plan that I wrote um, over the next, like, three to five years, that pool will get its exposure that it needs. Um, there will be some new revenue streams for pool that people are going to invest in and people can make a lot of money on. Mm-hmm. So, and that's my dream. That's that's the legacy that I'd like to see um, for my dad and for my kids to know that you know their grandfather was a part of this. Well, I think that's uh, it's tremendous work to be doing, and I know that uh, a lot of the people who will hear this and who are involved in uh, in pool and in the promotion of the game are really feeling like there is a lot of energy and momentum moving in the positive directions for for pool and for the players. So I think that if if people continue to do uh do things and speak positively about the players and about the sport and to be as public as they can, I think there will be continued momentum. At least I, I definitely hope there will be. So I think I'd like to touch also on how your dad and how pool influenced you as a as a writer and as as an individual like what did you what did you take away from uh coming up either either positively or negatively i'm sure there were some <laughs> lessons lessons that you would say man i don't think i i don't think i want to do that or go that route Yes, I mean, I definitely, I, I really love having a savings account and 401ks and college funds. Like, so that's probably, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the harder part of growing up was financial um, stability was, wasn't really there, um, although sometimes it was, like, fantastic, you know. Um, but I, I do, you know, I, my dad says I'm, you know, like a total square and a geek, which is, um, you know, just because normally you rebel against your parents. So I, I wanted a little more security than, than I had growing up. However, I have no doubt in my mind that I would not have the skill sets that I have that made me an author if I hadn't grown up in the pool room because um, I was surrounded by phenomenal characters. And it was also the, – the pool room is actually a very quiet place. I mean, I think – you know, I mean, sometimes there are players that part of their act is that they're really loud and you maybe try to bug the, the competitor. But for the most mm-hmm. part, as a child, I mean, you had to be – I had to be quiet in the pool room, and I had to pay attention to everything. Right. 
And I, um, you know, I would read books and I would play crossword puzzles and I would draw and, and, um, and write. But really I had to, I, I was forced to be quiet and I was forced to pay attention to all the details. Right. So like mm-hmm. the way the accent that someone had, their silly name, you know, their nickname, um, what what people looked like, um, what their background was. And, and sometimes it seems like these were all tall tales. So they were all storytellers. Right. It was, mm-hmm. It's so stranger than fiction. Um, most of it probably was true. <laughs> But um, but I, I learned so many skills as to being a writer. Like, I can remember things from 30 years ago, like what someone was wearing, what they said, what their inflection was. And I really do think that that was because I was forced as a child <laughs> to hang out at the pool room for hours and hours. So I am very grateful for that. I'm also very grateful for, um, you know, a, a, a great athlete's um, mentality and psychology to believe in good magic, which definitely carries you through any type of a game. Like I think I've told you earlier, you know, Michael Jordan, this guy must had to have believed in good magic when it seems like everything on paper is telling you numbers wise, this is not going to happen. And somehow because you believe in yourself and you believe in your own reality and your own um, success that you then beat the guy or then you then win the game. And Part of my job, I think, right now helping my father is that, and the reason why this is all going to be is his first two books are technical books. So that's only going to cater to the pool player, right, or the pool bug. But mm-hmm. this, this book of, of this encyclopedia of pool hustlers, this is a book anybody would read. This is a Coen Brothers film, okay, if I ever saw one. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an American history. Anybody could read it. Anyone would be delighted, tickled, um, be uh, so interested in reading about celebrities um, like, you know, John E. Mathis and Paul Newman and, um, you know, Amarillo Slim. Um, so it's really a book for the masses. I thought, wow, we could really market this. I mean, a lot of people would like it. So so for that, for learning the skill sets to be a writer, which was special to the pool room, you know, it was like Norman Mailer, like Charles Bukowski world, um, to believing in good magic, and as my dad always said, not everything in life is on the square. So that is what I learned. Yeah, I think those are, they're all really dynamic life lessons, and I can speak from experience that there's really no, you really can't uh, have any guess on what you can come across in a in a situation in a pool room or in a tournament situation because there's always uh unexpected variables and you never you never know who can potentially walk into the room <laughs> at any moment. Yeah, and I think when we're trying to educate the rest of the world who's new to pool, and this is really in America because as we know in Asia and in Europe, snooker and pool is huge. So they know the game of pool and they appreciate right. it and they spend a lot of money on it. So let's just say America that if we have translators like you, Allison, and your show, and me here, not really in the pool world, but kind of in the pool world, and we translate it to people to something they understand, if we translate it to Sports Illustrated or the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, is remember those matches between Sampras and Agassi. Remember how all of a sudden it changed, you know, how it was all psychological, you know, um, a game of chess, you know, super psychological. You have to play offense and defense and think a few 
steps ahead or, you know, look at the difference between a Major League Baseball player who gets $300 million, whether or not he wins the World Series, uh, versus a pool player who um, money is money is a precious gift in pool. There isn't a lot of money to be made as there was, and, and you, you're not going home in a Ferrari necessarily if you lose the game. You may not be able to buy yourself dinner if you lose the game. So I think if we're able to translate pool to intellectuals who already love sports to give them a greater appreciation for the game and give it the respect that it deserves, people are going to start um, writing more stories about pool. You just have to, you have to, you have to give them great parallels, and there are great parallels to pool in other sports that people Most love. Most definitely. Most definitely. I think you really hit it on the head that it does require some some translation but once you get to the basic level of understanding some of the underlying mechanisms then it it isn't such a enigma it isn't such a, a mysterious realm of what on earth do pool players do so i feel like that's a that's a hurdle to be taken on but there's also i think some very interesting possibilities to come um, for many, many aspects of the sport and the players. Absolutely. And when you want to tell people how big pool was or, or can be, and and they read that Michael Corda um, Esquire article on Minnesota Fast hanging out with George Clinton, you know, um, who, who founded the Paris, one of the founders of the Paris Review, or if you know that Minnesota Fast was one of the longest guests in history of either Jack Carr or Johnny Carson, where they canceled the rest of the guests because everyone loved him, or that Minnesota Fats used to be on uh, ABC's Wild World of Sports with Howard Cosell, um, mm-hmm. you know, being the MC, and it was like, I mean, this obviously was a time when there were only three networks. Okay, now we have like a thousand networks, but that kind of power is possible, and you just swap out Fats for Freddie the Beard. I mean, there's a lot of potential here. You know, there's thousands of networks you can be on. Yeah, I mean, that's how Big Pool used to be. Minnesota Fats used to sell out stadiums to watch exhibition games, which probably wasn't even the best way to use him. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, if he just had to tell stories. I mean, he played Zsa Zsa Gabor on television, okay? I'm 42, <laughs> so that's, that's relevant to me. It may not be, but I mean, that's kind of, that's, that's very cool. It's very cool, and it shows at to what level pool has been infiltrated, you know, the, the top tiers of celebrity. Absolutely. And you look at, say, every, not every celebrity, but there are plenty of celebrities who you've seen, say, on MTV Cribs, who have uh, fantastic pool tables and game rooms. So pool is something that is really a, a cool uh, exclusive sort of thing to be involved with. So I think there is a, an element of uh, excitement and fun and mystique surrounding the game that is really a, a great, uh, great potential to tap into. And I think that all these players have great memories, like your amateur players that play at, they played in bars when they were in, you know, college or when they were in their 20s and they're, like, working their crappy first job in New York City and, you know, maybe they played a game of pool. Like, they have really – there's really fond memories associated with the non-professional pool player that right. they have. And um, 
I really think that, um, you know, I want my dad to be like, I want all of you celebrities, because there's no greater advertising than having a celebrity with a pool cue, right, or, or talk about pool, right? That's free advertising. They already have their market down, and they're going to help share, put pool as part of what they're promoting, right? Absolutely. Um, you don't have to invent an audience because celebrities already have large audiences, right? But I'd like my dad to say, listen, I want all of you celebrities. I want Jimmy Fallon. I want Jimmy Kimmel. I want you to come out of the woodwork with with your pool cue, and we're going to play a game of pool because I know you're playing it, okay? Mm-hmm. You're playing it at a Hollywood party. You're playing it in your basement, right? Come out and and, and ha- let's have some fun together. Let's mm-hmm. show that, that that it's being played on every level of society in America, and um, let's yeah, let's let's have fun with it. Like the reason why there is not a celebrity pool tournament other than there's one in New York City with that New York giant for his literacy foundation. Tuck. I, mean, mm-hmm. I mean, there should be, and God bless him for doing that. Okay, but like this should be happening all the time. I mean, this should be a no brainer. That there are celebrities who are like, I am dying to play so and so in pool, and what I, I want to show how good I am at pool, right? You know, there's like. Sure. People have their confidence level where they yeah, tell they're a good yeah. player. Everybody wants their bragging rights to say, oh, I, I know I can beat this guy. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, George Clooney, I mean, he probably, believe me, that guy shoots, that guy shoots pool, okay? I got to believe he's had a, a few great nights playing pool. Well, why doesn't right. he come join on? So I'm inviting everyone to do this and, and let my dad be the person that, magnetizes people who can help spread the word about pool. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story and sharing your experiences with your dad. And I oh, it was a pleasure. Both, uh, yeah, I wish you both uh, all the luck in promoting the book. And uh, I commend you, like I said, for, for doing some great work for the sport. Thank you, Allison, and, and I commend you as well for um, taking pool so seriously and giving it a, the, the high respect that it deserves and keep up the good work, okay? All right, fantastic. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. And once again, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this week's edition of Pool on the Grind. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned. I'm Allison Fisher here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com. Welcome to American Billiard Radio. This is a Legends and Champions Report with myself, Mark Cantrell, brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabin, Mesa, Arizona. And based on our previous conversation with Mark Wilson, we said our plan is to go through each of the eight contenders for the Moscone Cup team to represent the USA and do an interview with each of them and, and just kind of get some information. Maybe we'll learn a little bit more about them. And so my first guest is the one and only Mr. Oscar Dominguez. How are you today, Oscar? I'm doing well, Mark. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. And, you know, first of all, I've got to tell you, we've we've spoke real nice about you in the past two shows. Um, you know, your dad and yourself, 
it's hard to find anybody who does who has something nice to say who doesn't have anything nice to say about you. Huh, and uh, I'm sure I'm sure your dad's been a big part of uh, bringing you up properly. He just seems like a, a real stand-up guy. I told you a lot, I imagine. Yeah, I got pretty lucky with him. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, it's an honor to to be. You know, we with us eight players, and uh, by October, uh, Mark Wilson's going to chop the team down to the actual five. And I think, it's a, first of all, it's an honor, isn't it, to be in the top eight? You know how many players there are out there who are great players. Uh, you see, you've got to feel a little blessed that oh, you've got the top eight. Yeah, absolutely. It's just uh, there's so many great players who obviously – did not make it, and uh, it's hard to say that, you know, we're better than anyone, that I'm better than anyone. I don't say anything, but, uh, you know, I'm just thrilled at the opportunity to play, you know, make the team or not. I'm still happy to have just that glimmer of hope. Well, you know, the thing is, you guys, everybody can play. It's not a matter of this guy's better than this guy. Everybody can run the six packs, so... You know, if you if you're in that position, you you know you qualified to to play. Um, but other than playing ability, and this is a question I'm, I plan to ask everybody. Other than playing ability, what do you think you bring to the table that separates you from some of the other players? Um, I think I bring uh, a lot of international experience, considering I'm only 29. Um, I've traveled the world so much, and I've got... It's different, you know. It's a big difference playing internationally whereas you're playing domestically. You know, the food's different, the culture. You know, I'm in China for a month, and nobody speaks English, and I still gamble all day, all night with the guys. So, I mean, it's... There's something to say about that. I think that I bring that that toughness to the table to where I'm willing to to bet my own money and get in action and, you know... Obviously, the Moscone Cup is going to be in Europe this year, so playing overseas, that whole jet-lag thing, and there's a lot of... It's just a big difference playing overseas and hostile crowds, and I think I have that little bit of uh, of an edge over a lot of players, having that, that whole gambling and having a hostile crowd rooting against you for every ball. I mean, I enjoy that. I, I love that thrill. Right. Well, it's... Like you said, it's, it's not easy um, when you go overseas to play in you know uh, international tournaments. It, it, for an example, if you're in China, you know you might be playing against a guy who every night sleeps in his own bed, is used to the conditions, and doesn't have jet lag. He hasn't been traveling for the last you know 24 hours to get there. Right. And. And you do, you. That's the thing. I think why you know a lot of times the American players don't do as well overseas is because they're playing against the. They are sometimes the. I've heard there isn't even a practice table. No, in China there isn't. It's it's very difficult. I mean, the Chinese uh, know where the pools are with the new cloth, and they keep it to themselves, and they don't tell anyone. So I mean, it's it's okay. I mean, that's. I don't. I'm not upset about that. I I expect that. You know, you have no, to but no. But it adds to the it adds it adds to the toughness. Of, oh, absolutely. Uh, is all I'm saying the the mental toughness to be able to get through that stuff. So right, right. So now it doesn't faze me. I'm expecting the worst every time I go anywhere. 
Well, you know, one of the things that Mark Wilson had said about you in particular was that you, you know, one of the reasons, because I asked the same question, I said, take the playing ability out of the equation. What, what is it about each play, you know, including yourself? And he said that you had a lot of work ethic. Mm-hmm. And that was important to him, along with the other things that I said earlier about you and your dad being well respected, stand up straight, straight up guys. You know, um, you you work you work with your dad, right? Yeah, I fix pool tables, and you know, I come home sometimes late, and I stay up just to hit some balls on my home table, so so I don't get tight, you know. So you work with with you with your dad to table. Can building table preparing tables, and do you also still go to school? Um, right now I'm not, but yes, that's I'm actually looking at courses. I've been looking at courses for the past week or so, doing some online courses, finish my business degree and my kinesiology degree. Well, you might be one of the smartest pool players out there, huh? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> just, no, there's a lot of smart guys out there. Um. Last that you've played one time before in the Moscone Cup, so you do have some experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in 2009 is uh, the last one we played. Where, where was that? That was in Las Vegas. It was at the MGM Grand. Yeah. And what was your experience like for somebody, you know, some myself who's never had to, you know, been given an opportunity or blessed with a gift to be able to play pool as you do? What was that experience like for you? Um... Let me think. It's kind of like the thing is, is that you're thrown into the fire, and you know what to expect. I mean, sure, there's pressure, but once you get in there, it's, I wasn't really nervous. It was weird. I'm all, I wasn't felt like I wasn't ready to shoot yet. Like they said, okay, now you're up, and you know we go through the tunnel and we go in and we go into the arena, and they said, okay, lag. And we're like, wait a minute, can I hit like a practice rack first? <laughs> you're like. Like your your mind's not completely adjusted to actually performing. Like you're not ready. You're still kind of in awe at the whole event of you know the lights and the cameras, and you get thrown in there. And you're like, damn, I'm not ready. And I think that's probably the most difficult thing is being thrown into a light and shooting when they want you to shoot, not when you're expecting to shoot. So right. that whole shot clock thing and everything kind of gets to you a little bit. Um, I feel like. I got that out of the way. I already know what to expect if I do get the opportunity. I think that's the biggest thing is getting put out there, okay, now you got to shoot. It's it's not the pressure of the event itself. It's more like of you not being ready to shoot. <laughs> it was like it was just a little awkward as far as that's concerned. Um, besides that, it's, it's a pretty good feeling, but having like, you know, four other guys rooting every shot behind you, hoping – that you don't miss. Usually they're hoping that you miss. And uh, it's nice to have that support of, like, four other great champions right behind you. And uh, and it's nice to where we share ideas. And I actually learned more in those four days about pool than I have learned in years because, yeah, these great minds all in one place working as a cohesive unit and they're sharing knowledge to where normally they wouldn't share. Right. So they're sharing it because it's in our best benefit as a team to win. So we're all trying to help each other out. And it's it's a, it's a different experience, you know. You, you really 
It's a great bonding experience. It's that and also I played a teams event in Germany with Johnny, Shane, and Corey. Those are world team championships. And the same thing applied there. When we played, we, we try to help each other out. Well, it's, I, I, I can't imagine... If that was the only part that in your mind there was your problem, just not being, having to shoot when they said so, mm-hmm. um, it's got to be a little bit of a whirlwind, you know. All of a sudden, you're putting on a Team USA jersey and you walk down the corridors and saying, hey, what's going on? Good luck. Can I take a picture? Can you sign this? And then the, you know, manage them do a real good job prior to the PR and the media stuff. And all that, you know, coming to a, a a point where, okay, you're doing all this other, like, it's kind of like a, I don't know, superstar stuff in my eyes, you know, yeah. where you're doing all these promo things. You're doing all this superstar stuff, and now you're out there. You don't want to let down your team. You don't want to let down your country. You don't want to let down your friends or family. And you don't want to let yourself down. Stupid. You know, I think there's, I think there's so much pressure that, you know, as to the people like Johnny who said there's, there's no way you can ever prepare. It don't matter if it's the U.S. Open or anything else. You can't prepare for what that is. Yeah. But what advice do you give to you know Justin Hall, Justin Bergman, uh, that are on? potentially on the team, and uh, Jeremy Sosi, who've never played in the Moscone Cup before. Now, granted, you've only played it once, but you know something that they don't know. Yeah. And it's going to be worse in Blackpool this time than it's been anywhere else. What do you think you could give? What advice could you give any of these guys? I think I'm going to give them what many people think is bad advice. I'm probably going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to say don't care too much. When you care too much, you try too hard to win. And when you try too hard to win, you don't perform to your ability. Analysis paralysis. I I read a lot of sports psychology books and stuff like that. So um, I just think that what they have, I think uh, my biggest recommendation to, to, to those guys are is don't care. Just go out there like you're, don't, worry about, oh, Oscar, do you want me to leave you on this side of the ball? Or, Shane, do you want me to leave you straight in? Or, don't don't care. Just play. Play pool. I mean, there's a reason why you're selected. Because you're one of the best players in the country, one of the best players in the world. You know, a lot of guys like Jeremy and uh, Justin Hall and Bergman, they don't know how good they play. They really don't. Um, unless you go out there and see the international competition. They play at a very high level. A lot of people don't give them credit because they don't compete on the international level or they don't go out there. I mean, it's just a matter of don't put so much emphasis on the event. Just play pool. You know, in the It gets down to just playing pool. And I think right. that's one thing um, we forget. Even though we forget to play pool, we really do. And uh, just don't care. Just go out there and, you know, if you think it's kind of a, a flyer, just go for it. Go for the win. Shoot to play to win. Don't play to... Don't be scared of anything, you know. So I think I might have to give them maybe bad advice. It, it might backfire on me, but I might just sound like don't care so much. Try to relax and just let it go. Let your right. 
well, you know, obviously, no matter what happens every year with the Moscone Cup team, there's always some element of negativity or, well, this, oh, this is wrong, this is wrong. And now, you know, Mark Wilson is in a spot here, whereas he's revamping the whole thing. Yeah. And he's got a much younger um, set of players. I mean, you know, there's uh, John Schmidt there, and, uh, you know, obviously Shane's had a lot of experience uh, at the Moscone Cup and Corey as well. But no matter what happens, he's going to get kind of attacked. And I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and I said, you know what? In all reality, all they've got to do is win three matches. If they can get three matches won, they did better than last year. <laughs> right? I know it sounds silly. They did better than last year. And yeah, everybody's going, uh, oh, this team's so young. They should, you know, this is not the right move. Well, you know what? You had Rodney, Johnny, Shane, Earl, and Dennis last year. Okay? These are three, five top legendary players that are out there. And they go eleven two. So once you guys get past three games, you go, hey listen, we got nothing to lose. We already did better than last year and hopefully the wound will be lifted off your shoulders. Yeah. Well, to not let anybody absolutely. down. Absolutely. I mean there's there's the expectations are not high of the team USA as as of late. I mean I'd be lying to you if I didn't read AZ Billiards and, you know, my Facebook posts and all that nonsense. You know, I like reading it in a way because it kind of says, all right, I'm going to go outside and practice now. And it kind of fuels a fire of, like, you you idiots have no idea what you're talking about. You know, <laughs> in, all, in all honesty, I hate to, I don't want to, you know, talk poorly about anyone, but they don't know. You know, the general public doesn't know what we go through and, you know, the things that we go through to play pool, they don't know because, you know, they, they play their league on Wednesday nights and they go home to their families and they have a nine-to-five. That's different. When you're out there grinding and you don't know what it's like to be broke and going all in on the last bet, you know, betting every dollar you have, you know, it builds character. And maybe it's careless or reckless. You can call it whatever you want, but it does build character and you do appreciate what you have. It's just... They don't. They don't know. So, for us, I, I think I honestly feel no matter what Team USA brings, we have a legitimate chance to win. I, in my heart, I feel that against any European team. I mean, when we won in '09, we played Niels, uh, Thorsten, Darren, Ralph, and Mika, like the five top players in all in the world in all of Europe. I was, they called it the dream team when we played, and we were huge underdogs. And it's amazing what chemistry will do for a team. You know, I play a lot of basketball my whole life. I was a, I was a pretty good basketball player. And, um, basketball player? Yeah, I played a lot of Dude, basketball. You, you, yeah. What? You like five foot two? Yeah, I'm five nine. I mean, I used to be able to, <laughs> I was able to dunk a tennis ball. I mean, I was a, I was a pretty decent athlete. Um, you could, you could dunk a tennis ball, <laughs> not a basketball. <laughs> I can dunk a tennis ball. I couldn't get up. I couldn't palm the ball. And I was going to say that. Yeah, you know, I had a. I was a decent athlete. You know, I was. So I know what it's like to have good team chemistry in in sports. 
and it's it's just a little different. Um, it's just people don't have people based on individual results. You know, if you get Johnny, Shane, Corey, all these top champions, like for example, like last year's team, maybe they didn't have chemistry because of Earl. If you would have gotten rid of Earl and put in say Corey or Brandon Shuff or anyone really, I think they would have done better because Earl does affect team chemistry. He wants to win more than anybody. Don't get me wrong. He wants to win. But he doesn't express himself in the right way sometimes. And, you know, yeah, I think everybody knows that. It's thought. not easy having a guy saying that, what the hell are you doing when you make <laughs> a ball? You know, it's not a good feeling. <laughs> you don't want to hear it from anyone. <laughs> so right. I think uh, with Mark getting the team together early and selecting the players, um, I think it's going to be great. I really see a lot of potential. I mean, it's a lot of pressure on Mark to do well. I don't envy his position at all, because um, if they if Team USA wins this year, you know Mark's a hero. Or if we lose, Mark's not the smartest person in the world. And uh, oh yeah, he's, he's you know. on the he's on the block. He's either going to be a, oh. a genius or a dumbass. Exactly. I mean, he's. He's on death row, and uh, we're, trying to, we're trying to save him, basically. He's basically trying to save him. And I mean, I'm just being frank, you know, I'm not being around the bush. Um, that's the way it is. And, uh, you know, all I know is that Shane's out there competing, working his butt off. I know the other guys are. I am. I'm doing my part. And, um, you know, if I get picked, that's fine. If not, life goes on. Um, I'll be happy to, to cheer my team on. You know, I think uh, it's what's going to be good, and I've said this, I sound like a broken record when I talk about the difference between the European team and the chemistry. Yeah. And one of the things that happened, if you watch Facebook, and I know you're around these guys in, in competition all the time, but you look at these Europeans, and I don't care what, what event they're playing They'll go out on their off day, they'll play golf together, they'll all eat dinner together, maybe have a couple of beers. And when one guy's playing, they're playing against each other in the same tournament. They'll go and show up and watch and support the other guy. Yeah. And and they do that all the time. Not because they're on the Moscone Cup team. They do it just because that's what they do. Right. And then from this point on, for, well, for, in the past, Team USA shown up, and not have. Everybody knows everybody, and everybody's probably friends, and everybody's got their enemies. But they show up two days before the event and think that they can have breakfast together every day, and that's going to create unity and bonding. But there's a lot of catching up to do that the Europeans already have in place. So now maybe you guys, when you're in a, a tournament somewhere, Maybe you go, oh, you know what? That's Justin Bergman. I'm gonna say I'm gonna support him and see if he wants to go for dinner or lunch and and build that camaraderie right. that way because nobody's ever had the chance to do this before. So I think everybody should try and take advantage of it. Is my personal opinion and see if it is the team London that's been the problem. Yeah, I mean I agree 100. percent It's um... You know, usually the Americans are out there betting against each other, <laughs> you know, hoping, hoping they lose, hoping they dog in the nine ball. Hell, hell. Um, you know, it's it's a whole different 
thing. I mean, like the pride that the Europeans approach. Uh, it's one thing I've always admired. Like you see Niels and uh, Nick Vandenberg, a perfect example. They're best buds and they're mortal enemies when they play each other. Right. Same with PUGC. But they're always together. They're always going out to eat. Uh, you got Darren. You got Carl. Uh, Chris Melling, Jason Shaw, and Daryl Peets are all buddies. They're all, they're all British guys. And they all, you know, sweat each other's matches. And uh, you're absolutely right. The chemistry that they have is, becomes more natural to them. Whereas us, you get five individuals and try to throw them together and hope it works. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and, uh, we'll have to see what happens. Hopefully, you know this is this is the opportunity for it to happen. So, we'll you know, hopefully, you know, everything will work out that way. And if you make the team, which I think you've got a pretty good chance of making the team, um, that's my personal opinion. But I don't know nothing. Um, okay. Will you will you will your dad make it over? Think he'll go over to Blackpool and watch? Oh, my dad will go. Yeah, I mean I. I'd make sure he goes if he if I happen to make the team. Um, you know, flights from LAX are pretty cheap, not too bad. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would I would drag him along um, definitely because he's. Uh, I noticed in '09 he he was very involved. He he wasn't involved the first day, but he kind of got involved after we started playing, and he was racking the balls for Corey and you know giving you know, me advice in between and it's just like it's it's something different when you have that experience my dad has. I mean my dad sure. a lot of people don't know. My dad was a very good player when he was younger and uh, you know, he played Keith McCready for the cash when Keith was the number one player you know, best money player, my dad beat him for like ten thousand. He played Billy Cardone when he was Mr. Nineball for twenty thousand, you know. He beat right. Hong Pang Chow in Taiwan for like fifteen thousand. I mean, he's beaten the best players in the world for the cash. It's just well, that he doesn't. He doesn't ever publicize that. He's got he's a lot of experience. I remember uh, yeah. your dad actually the first guy that I um, when I started getting involved in, in pool, and mm-hmm. you know, I always loved him. I came from a snooker background. I always, always loved Q Sports, and I you know I'd watch ESPN and things like that. And all of a sudden, I was getting more and more involved in this tournament, and your dad was there. Mm-hmm. And he's the first pool, famous pool player that I'd ever seen in real life. That's on TV. That's on TV. He was on TV quite a bit at one point, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Um, he came in second at like, the Can World Series, and he came... What, he ended up uh, playing that Challenge of Champions in 2001, I think it was. So, yeah, I mean, he, he was playing very well for a moment. It's just that, you know, he had a family. My older brothers, he quit playing for a while and uh, never really gave it a full dedication because, you know, he sent us to private schools and Catholic schools our whole lives. I mean, I've gone to private school my whole life, so. Wow. You know, and that actually, gosh. That just says it. I didn't know that. That's a hell of a lot because you know we all know what this, you know, how pool is and it is to make a living in the in the sport. I mean, on top of everything, and 
the fact that he had the determination to play cool and work and to do what he needed to do, not only just to survive. I mean, surviving is one thing. Just putting your light bill, you know, yeah. and food on the table is one thing. But being able to put you guys in a position to your private school, I know that ain't cheap. Yeah, I went and, to Notre Dame High School, which is like affiliated with the University of Notre Dame. So, I mean, I went to one of the prestigious high schools. Like, I was a poor kid on campus, but I mean, it was it was cool. I mean, I went I went to a great school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're very, very lucky, and uh, your dad has uh, just affirmed my belief in the kind of person he is. So, but I, I, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, and uh, hopefully. You know, when we get a little bit closer and uh, and you're picked for the team, we'll be have another conversation about what's going on in your life and what your hopes and aspirations are at that point. Sounds good. I hope so. <laughs> also, I wish you good luck, my friend, and I hope everything works out for you. And uh, I will speak to you again real soon. All right. Thank you, Mark. Have a good one. All right. Thank you. And that was Oscar Dominguez. And this is the Legends of Champions Report, myself, Mark Cantrell, brought to you by Neil's Garage Cabinets of Mesa, Arizona. Thanks for listening. Hope this has been informative and you've learned something. And we will see you all again next week.